Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, October 13th. Today we have an interview with Will Hershey, mm-hmm. CEO and co-founder of Round Hill Investments. Big time interview. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It's really interesting what they do. It's, uh, I mean, he'll dive into it, but it's the ETFs. They've got two ETFs. It's uh, the Bets and the Nerd ETF. And don't forget Deep Value. And Deep Value. Yep. Um, and those are, the Bets and the Nerd are gaming and gambling. Right. Yeah, so they're they're not factor focused; they're uh, thematic focused. They're kind of a startup going off of that, and they've had a lot of momentum, and it's exciting to hear what they're doing. Yeah, and then we have our own stories before that. What are you talking about? Uh, mine. Ugh. I mean, it's it's kind of tough to say what it is. It's a it's a paper from Morgan Stanley talking about how to actually classify free cash flow and intangible investments. So going to be a real fun topic. Yeah, right? really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've got the Twilio acquisition of Segment. So that should be a lot of fun. And then yep. we always, as always, we have our current state of FinTwit. We have Hot Water, Fuck, Mary Kill, and Anecdotal Evidence. Let's go. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are not financial advisors. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or a recommendation. Now please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. Should I kick things off for you? Uh, you go ahead, yeah. We'll okay. Take that out of the way. Uh, this morning, Monday morning, so we're recording on Monday. It's coming out on Tuesday. Uh, Twilio officially announced that they are acquiring Segment for $3.2 billion in an all-stock deal. Uh, quick breakdown of both businesses if you don't know either one. Um, Twilio owns a library of APIs that developers pay to use when building out communications tools on their apps or websites. Um, and if, if some of that was mumbo-jumbo, I'll yeah. explain it. Um, and then Segment also runs a similar model, except the APIs are built to help better collect and use customer data. And so they're pulling together data from a lot of different apps as well. Um, so think about if you're building a website to sell purses or something like that, and you want to have instant messaging function on there, and um, you wanted to see how your users spend their time on your website. Um, how you could better market towards them. You'd be using a Twilio API, you'd be using a Segment API, and all that stuff. It'd all be embedded in there. Right. Um, but as far as the actual deal goes, Segment's latest private round was at a valuation of $1.5 billion. That was in 2019, April of 2019. Um, and they obviously got bought out for $3.2 billion in an all-stock deal. The deal was financed in Twilio Class A common stock on a cash-free and debt-free basis. 
Basically what that means is that when a buyer purchases a company and its assets, it is on the basis that the seller will pay off all the debt and extract all excess cash prior to completion of the transaction. Did you find that on Investopedia? Oh yeah, big time. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did not classic. know what it was, so I was like, I'm going to look that up. <laughs> classic Investopedia right there. Um, okay, but without knowing any of the financials of Segment, do you think Twilio overpaid or does this look good? Mm, on an absolute basis... Perhaps, but it seems like the acquisition makes sense. And then when you look at the fact that Twilio has a premium stock price, a lot of people are celebrating management, which I think I agree with, for using that expensive stock price as a currency to acquire other companies. Now, the catch there is like, if you're an investor of Twilio, are you just admitting that the stock's overvalued? Maybe, but it kind of shows that management is willing to think, all right, we're going to have to dilute shareholders here, but it's the right thing to do because our shares trade at such a wild valuation. Right. And as of this morning, Twilio, I believe, is about a $50 billion business. I didn't know that. Market cap-wise, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. had a fantastic run. Um, do you think Twilio will be like the backbone of most websites and apps going forward? It's tough to say. Tough they're building to say. out a lot of functionality in the API space. Yeah. I mean, it seems like they're trying to be – they're trying to own everything in that. So – it's and really that's obviously going to be a huge market. Um, yeah, it's it's out of any expertise I have. I, I don't have it in APIs, so it's tough yeah. for me to say, but all I can say is they have a lot of momentum. Here's the thing, and this always either makes me think the market is wildly overvalued or we tend to misprice a lot of uh, software yeah. companies because like a year ago, we were like, oh, we've missed the boat on this thing. And yeah. now we look at it and we're like, oh, we missed the boat. Is this one of those where I say that over and over and then it 10x? <laughs> it could be. It could be. And the thing is with investing is if you lose you know, on this one, we chose not to invest and it didn't work out uh, because we chose not to and it turned out to be a market beater. It doesn't mean you can't beat the market investing in other things. You don't have to swing at every pitch. And if you don't understand Twilio, you might not want to invest in it, but if you do understand it and you think, all right, Twilio is going to dominate this market, I actually know how all these software APIs work, um, you got a clear advantage, at least yeah. from my purview. I mean, you don't really get a firsthand experience of the customer value prop unless you're a developer. Right, right. Which, or you're just really smart at learning these companies. I tend to like companies where I can at least get my hands on the product and understand it. It's pretty hard to do. Um, if you aren't building out a website. Agreed, agreed. Okay, uh, that's all I had, so. All right, you? mine, it's going to be a little more of the eat your veggies, as they say. Um, so it's from Michael Mobison and Morgan Stanley. It was a paper published mid-September, so it's about a month old, uh, and I didn't really see it until recently, but lucky I did because this might be one of the best papers I've ever read. Most papers you read are like, gosh, this is just boring, dry stuff. There were so many nuggets in here. I'm probably only going to hit like a third of them, but it was on intangible investments and free cash flow and how to classify things correctly. So he starts out, um, I guess, with an anecdote on Walmart. If we go to the top here of the paper, it's only like 25 pages, so not even that beefy. And like a third of that is graphs and the index or whatever, the annotations. So sure. not even that long. He talks about in the intro here, though, that there's a company that's profitable for the next 15 years. It's going to have steady profits. It's going to grow those profits at a 40% compound annual rate. And it's going to initiate a dividend, which will grow at a 50% compound annual rate. But the same company is going to have negative free cash flow for the next 15 years. The level of debt will grow at a 34% compound annual rate over that same time frame. Would you want to invest in that company? 
I'm having a little bit of a hard time following you verbally. Um, okay, sorry, that's a lot of numbers, but say yeah. terrible cash flow, good earnings. No. Well, that company is Walmart, one of the best performing stocks of all time. Wait, so, the, so they terrible cash flow, but good on think a gap of it, basis? Think of it, yeah, think of it like Netflix right now. So they're technically earning money, but on the cash flow basis, they're investing more into the business. So the capital expenditures are a lot larger. But no. they're getting a high return on invested capital, which I think for Walmart was 18%. So it's just showing that on a gap basis, even if you have a ton of negative free cash flow, it doesn't mean it's going to be a bad business. And it also shows that gap accounting can make things seem like a company is really profitable or not. Um, and there's just a ton of nuance there. So I mean, he has that anecdote. Just, it's a classic Amazon thing, right? Where yeah. no one really knows how profitable they are because they're pouring so much into CapEx. Yeah, and the, the classic example of when is someone says, well, Amazon's never made money. And it's like, well, technically they haven't stated any earnings. Um, but they have had a lot of operating free ca operating cash flow and cash flow. Um, but that's that's just an example you wanted to use on how things can get distorted and each business is unique. Uh, but it does go into different things here. So the overview of the entire paper was how should investors classify research and development and SG&A expenses like to properly account for these? Are they intangible investments, i.e. should they be expensed in the income statement or should they be put in with capital expenditures as a financing um, operation? And he kind of thinks that a lot of stuff that is being put in the income statement, which is decreasing operating income should actually be put in capital expenditures and instead of uh so operating income would rise in that case correct like what what was he like what was he highlighting that is I'll, often in the office? i'll get into it but one of them he says first off every company you should uh add back stock-based compensation yeah right so stock-based compensation is a way that these capital light businesses kind of cheat but not on purpose it's just the gap accounting okay. they kind of cheat and make their free cash flow higher than they think so he says you right. should take the free cash flow number you get from a gap basis and subtract out any stock based compensation right and it feels like they're kind of cheating it but bill brewster had a good point on value after hours uh, this week and was like if you were in management shoes, why don't you do the same thing? Oh, he's not saying it's a bad thing, but he's just saying that you should add back because it's it's not expenses. It's the way you finance your, and I'm going to say property and equipment, but the property and equipment for these capitalized software companies are the brains of the developers that are building this th these things. Right. And that should be amortized as an investment, but not an expense. So it just makes that free, that cash flow numbers uh, seem higher than it actually is. Do you agree yeah. with that? Does that make sense? Yeah, it feels like a lot of it is like you just have to look at the expense on sort of a absolute basis. Yeah. Because a lot of it you can kind of add back here and there and there's like gray area like would you especially with the software businesses, there's so mm -hmm. much there's so many expenses that are in between like where that would actually go. And one note he made is that gross margin, sorry. If a company has high gross margins, it's an indicator that they're hiding a lot of their investments on the um, operating expenses line. So a lot of the companies we look at, oftentimes software as a service, you know, 70 to 90% gross margins, they can be hiding a lot of things in the expense line 
that is actually capital investment. So okay, yeah, I've had a gripe with this before. Yeah, um, uh, you like the paper goes into a lot more detail, and it's really hard to discuss it like verbally. Um, yeah. So we're, I'm gonna make it kind of dumbed down. But yeah, that's kind of the way he, he put it. There are operating expenses that scale with the business. People mm -hmm. tend to forget that people. I mean, I've maybe done it before too. You see like 91% gross margins and you just think the margin conversion over time, once they hit scale, operating yeah. will be yeah. really close to gross. There's a lot of times when there's nuance to that and that's not true. Yeah. And I mean, he sums it up like this. So here's a quote directly from the essay. The recording of investments has largely migrated from the balance sheet to the income statement. An investor's job has not changed, but the analytical approach has. So if you want to cheat yourself, you can just use the standard gap stuff and just calculate the cash flow and calculate it using a simple formula. But in reality, you probably need to do it on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, one note he had here is that in 1974, the uh, Financial Accounting like Standards Board, whoever classifies everything, they decided that R&D expense should be expensed, as I just said, sorry, and not capitalized, which means that it's put in the operating expense line but it's not put in the investment line. So Mobison says in the paper that he argued that for these capital light businesses, the R&D is the intangible investment and that most of the time, 100% of it should be taken out of the expense line, which boosts operating income, right? Yeah. But it should be amortized or you know, a lot of it will be taken out of the expense line. It should be amortized over the life of the contract, five years, 10 years, and then added back into the uh, yeah. cash flow statement. It's really hard. That? It's really hard to do this not visually, like not yeah, looking yeah. at it. Um, so I'm sorry to the listeners if we're like not if we're kind of rambling. But I think does that make sense though? Yeah, I mean, yeah, and I I saw this on Twitter, so I I, I do agree. I think you tweeted this tidbit out, right? Yeah, that one especially. Yeah, and then what about advertising expense? Um, People estimate that should be about fifty percent of advertising expense, depending on the company, should be capitalized, and therefore instead of expensed on a directly amortized over the life of the contract yeah yeah I, I could argue that that's basically an investment it's but the thing is you got to do it as a case-by-case -case basis but if you're a software company like sometimes that's literally the like that's a cost that is an operating cost like that's yeah. how you do business yeah. is by marketing to get revenue mm -hmm. like i don't know it just I, I, like I said, there's nuance to everyone. And he was saying in the paper, there's isn't, there's not a perfect way to do everything. I mean, you have to make a ton of assumptions. And I think the best way is that you have to look at every company on a case-by-case -case basis and start at gross profit and say, okay, what assumptions do I make here? What things make sense? Because some companies like Walmart are different, but if you're looking at Microsoft, um, it's going to be entirely different how you look at the cash flow statement. Yeah, and FYI, if you're wondering what all is included in those operating expenses, they usually, on the 10K, they break down every line on the operating expenses. Yeah, So they do. that's a good place to start if you don't know where to go. Um, yeah. Okay, is that it for you? Yeah, and like I said, only covered about 20% of that. Um, so I'd recommend reading the paper um, to get the full thing because we're kind of top level here. Okay, that leads well into my current state of fintwit. Go ahead then. Um, first of all, like, isn't financial Twitter just boring when it's all time highs? Yeah. Like, and <laughs> we're on the ships, we're on the West Coast, and so every morning I just wake up to like everyone with tickers <laughs> and rocket ships eyeballs, and it's like that's not what I want to see in the morning. I don't know. It's uh, very yeah. it's very much the same every week when it's all time highs, and I'm happy everyone's making money, but you know, 
maybe a little more analysis would be good. Yeah, I um, agree. But anyway, I posted a poll this week on Twitter and asked whether a dollar in profits from a software business was worth more or less than a dollar in profits from a manufacturing business, which it's what I was aiming for was the whole what weighs more, a pound of bricks or a pound of feathers. And, you know, classic it's trying like to trick, you know, right. little trick for the brain. And I think people were either misunderstanding what I was asking or a little delusional about it. Because, well, they were instinctually going for that software, like instinctually. Right. Right? They, were, they were going for the earnings quality or, so, or mm-hmm. the future value of each dollar they earn. Because let's say it gets down to the past, the bottom line for a software business. Technically, you know, that's worth more when they reinvest it. And we just learned that it might not even be, we just learned it might not even be real profit, right? Yeah. And here's my thing. But those dollars are needed to pay for things Mm -hmm. that isn't always different. So let's say you have debt that you have to pay off. You don't get to pay less as a software business. Office space. Office space, salaries. I mean, I guess you can use stock-based compensation, which a lot of them do, but... And it depends what your valuation is, or else it's, you know, it might not be as worth worth it, you know? Yeah, it just... I don't know. On the, when, it go, when it comes down to the balance sheet, the dollars are worth the same. Also, and, software companies don't always have high reinvestment. Some software companies are bad. Yes, that is... Yeah. Um, anyway, it just made me think there is a lot of froth around software. Yes, I think you are not taking a bold stance there. No, I guess and, that's true. And... Uh, it's not. It seems contrarian to say, "All right, we just want a solid business, no matter what type it is." But there's some people that will, I feel like, only invest in software, and that's just limiting them. And they're just seeing software; they're putting it on a pedestal, that's, especially software as a service. That's the other thing. Okay, not every software business is higher margin than yeah. a manufacturing business. Okay, we were just doing all. We were yeah. just researching Altria. Altria, sixty-five something percent gross margins, mm-hmm. even a margin fifty-five percent. Yep. Name one software business other than maybe MasterCard that hits those EBITDA margins. Yeah. I guess there are probably. But, whatever. I mean, people could argue reinvestment rates, but yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, what did you have? Okay. I got a f- three here. Um, let's see. First one from Pythia Capital. Great follow if you haven't seen this. All right. He tweeted a, basically about Disney+. Plus. He said, if you think Disney+, Plus is a good business and a key part of Disney's flywheel, quote-unquote, even though everyone overuses Flywheel, right? Yeah. Um, it allows them to earn superior superior ROIC than Netflix. Why wouldn't you support a massive additional reinvestment against that amount? Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. And we just, we just got an announcement that they are doing that after that activist came in, but there was a ton of people arguing that they shouldn't do that. What do you think? Wait, they were arguing for the dividend? Like a lot of people um, were asking... To well, not, not specifically, not specifically for the dividend, but more of like balancing the investment across, you know, traditional movies, cable, and Disney Plus. But a lot of people are saying, no, 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 it's time to go all in with Disney Plus and the streaming services, and that's what that activist uh, Dan Loeb was saying too. That is, yeah, that is true because I know a lot of Tesla share or not Tesla, Disney. I guess I do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, very different businesses. I know a lot of Disney shareholders that are like, well, Disney Plus is going, you know, that's going to be a huge catalyst, huge growth driver for them. Um, but then they're like, but they also have the, the parks and all that stuff. So, you know, they, you know, having that balanced mm-hmm. approach. And I'm like, yeah. why wouldn't you want the, it's, you know, it's the software thing again. If, it's worth, true. if it's worth more reinvested in there, why not have that money there? But then if there's too much money chasing off of, so there's going to be so much, don't get like, me wrong. The I, supply of streaming is going to be so high. I, I don't, don't buy the Disney plus hype 
I wish a lot more money. I mean, obviously, it's hard times for the parks right now. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, well, here's it is a, a bigger business than streaming. Yeah, you may – this may feel a little anecdotal, but don't you feel like the supply of streaming content is just getting so saturated, like way overly saturated where the returns on it are going to decrease substantially for all these businesses? I'm not complaining as a consumer. No. Right? But, yeah. As an The demand's constant. And it, well, I mean, growing a little bit, but and I guess that's part of the bull thesis for like a Roku, you know, I is guess. making it all that stuff really easily accessible. Um, okay. Any other? Uh, you had two yeah. More, right? So there was yeah, there was a tweet from Gavin Baker, who is a investment manager, very good, another good follow. There was a Forbes article about this low code platform um, that came out of Stealth, and it basically is like an API kit type of deal. So he said that he thinks we're going to see a lot of low-code versions of every category of application software as a service. And he said it could be quite disruptive. Do you agree with that, where there's going to be these companies that make it so someone like us could, say, use Twilio, MongoDB, etc.? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the way the world's heading. And it's like, it's even to go like a step further, low code even to no code. Like yeah. Wix uses low code, let's say, and makes it really easy that we don't have to code at all. I think and compared to what, WordPress or something like that? Well, yeah, I mean, did you have to code for WordPress at all? I mean, a li if you want to customize any design, you have to code, which makes it difficult. So they like, I mean, Wix is a little different where you can customize the design a lot easier by just dragging and dropping. Uh, picking yeah. things and not actually typing in the coding language. I think it's, yeah, I think they're making it easier and easier to build. Uh, that's becoming pretty obvious. Yeah. I, I would agree with Gavin. And that, that just, uh, yeah, I'd agree as well. And that just, I mean, it shows to me that on aggregate, a lot of these software companies are valued like they have no competition and they have these giant moats. I mean, it just concerns me because we, we know a lot of people that are investing in these businesses. They know a lot more than us, but it just it concerns me at these valuations. Yeah, what's your last one? Okay, we already hit on it, but there was a ton of talk about the flywheel being the most overused investment term over the last five years. Should we cut mm. out the term flywheel except for making fun of it? Mm. We can't seriously use it because I think it's a cheat code. People are like, every company has a flywheel. Our podcast know. has a flywheel. We use the podcast and then we post it on Twitter and then we get some more followers on the podcast and then it gets more followers on Twitter. <laughs> it's a flywheel. Oh my God. I don't know. It's, uh, is it as bad as synergies? Synergies is old though. That's like synergies. synergies is the godfather. It's uh, honestly, people are starting to interchange those two and they shouldn't. Yeah. Be. I mean, if you interchange those, yeah. Like our Twitter accounts and our podcast have a lot of synergies. Yeah. So many synergies. Yeah. Or the YouTube channel. You can post videos at the same time. That so adds many to the flywheel effect. Yeah, so I think it's cheating to use Flywheel because it's like you're not actually doing the analysis. Right. If you actually think hard, you you can come up with a better bull case or bear case. Okay, next we have an interview with Will Hershey. What mm -hmm. was your favorite part about the interview? Mm, I like talking about Roblox. I like talking about Nintendo. I think he's, you know, I think he may be wrong on Nintendo that it actually is. You know, we like Nintendo a lot, but he did give the case where. Yeah, you know, I mean, they are they're in a hardware business yeah. that is a lot of first party still provide stuff. Hardware, but so. I thought it was a good discussion. I mean, we hit everything on gaming. We hit a lot on gambling. Um, his theories on that, he's kind of more of a like he has like a longer, I guess, longer term time horizon on the the, the gambling, yeah. and the sports betting, things like that. So there's a lot of good analysis there, and that's what he spends his whole day doing. So he's, he's kind also, of an expert yeah. on that stuff. He's really well informed with like 
the whole industries. Yes. You know. Yeah. And a, and as someone that's created an ETF, you don't have to be neck deep in the fundamentals of each business, but you just have to understand the industry as a whole. Yeah. And a lot of the adjacent type products, the industry tailwinds like Twitch, esports, that whole yeah. gamut. Um, okay. Uh, here's our interview. Today we are welcomed by Will Hershey. Will is the CEO and co-founder of Roundhill Investments. We have a lot of questions for Will. So before we get to that, Will, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be on. So how did, just right from the bat, right off the bat, how did you get your start in investing? Um, not Roundhill specifically, just investing as a whole. Yeah, so... I actually, I mean, both of my parents worked on Wall Street. So um, neither of these firms exist anymore. My dad spent most of his career at Merrill Lynch. My mom was at Lehman Brothers. Um, So I kind of grew up very much so, you know, CNBC on the TV. um, And kind of just interested in the markets from, from a really kind of early age. I forget when my dad helped me open a Scott trade account, but I definitely was not 18. Um, <laughs> maybe kind of reminiscent of what we're seeing with Robinhood right now. But uh, right, right. I was I was introduced to it from a really early age. Both my parents were in fixed income, corporate bonds and, and munis, but um, always kind of loved watching the markets from an early age and knew, kind of knew almost from day one, that's what I wanted to do. All right, well, You've started Roundhill. I don't know what the established date was, but what is it? And then what urged you to start it and kind of go off on your own? Yeah, so Roundhill, we're a registered investment advisor, SEC registered investment advisor uh, based in New York. My partner's actually in San Francisco. Um, And really our core competency and really what we're trying to do um, is issue thematic equity ETFs, really targeting what we believe to be secular growth trends that really appeal to kind of a self-directed younger audience where people are passionate about these themes. They, they understand the companies and what the companies do, um, but really maybe should be more playing in a diversified basket opposed, as opposed to kind of stock picking. And that was kind of the, the groundwork for, for starting the firm. Um, what made it, me decide to start it? So I actually connected with my co-founder back when crypto was going crazy. He was at his old desk uh, trading investment grade credit. I was at that time uh, we were winding down an energy long short fund that I lost all my hair doing that because this was people forget like energy's had such a rough go for longer than yeah, the yeah. last couple of years here. Um, I wasn't I wasn't on that desk for minus thirty seven dollars a barrel. I'm prompt, right, right. but I was there for twenty six, and that felt just as painful. Um, but we really said, even though there's thousands of ETFs out there, and there there literally are at this point, um, we thought there we could kind of do things really differently. Um, really build expertise in the ETFs we're launching as opposed to kind of the other model, which is throw out whatever's out there and hope something sticks that's kind of employed by the larger players. Really t- kind of take that expertise and, and package it into content. Um, and one thing I'll say that's kind of interesting about the way we approach ETFs, which at the end of the day is about raising assets, right? We're not active managers. We're not fundamental stock pickers per se, um, is not doing any traditional outbound sales and not doing any traditional outbound advertising, if you will, but instead focusing on that content. And so far it's been going well. We're at about a little bit over 200 million in assets under management. Most of that is in those two ETFs uh, or or, or two ETFs, one on on esports and video games, the second on online betting. Um, And we actually also did, 
I don't know if this shows up, it's not, not prominent on our website. We actually did a private investment as well, an SPV uh, investment, so. Okay, there was a third ETF too, right? The deep value ETF? There is a third uh, ETF, that's exactly right, deep value ETF. Um, for our eSports, which is, which is NERD, ticker symbols NERD, nice. for our online gambling, which is BETS, B-E-T-Z, we're actually the advisor to the funds. So we started those from scratch and launched them. In the case of, of Deep, uh, it was actually an existing fund that was around for about five or six years. I think it was launched in 2014. And our, our kind of core thesis is around these thematic growth sectors. Clearly, Deep Value doesn't fit uh, in that story. Um, but we were given the opportunity to really take over that fund already with 20 million in assets, uh, partnered with Tobias Carlisle, who you guys might know from, from Fintwit to help us uh, kind of pick the value basket and saw, even though that's not going to be our core competency and we're working on some pretty exciting, I think, thematics that fit in that bucket, it was just opportunistic and, you know, value is going to turn at some point. Um, it kind of just, it was too hard to say no to take that over. And you're giving people the opportunity. It's not like you're betting on deep value in itself. You're just giving people a vehicle to invest in it if they want to, correct? Is that how you kind of go about exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. It, it, exactly. And, and and Tobias could speak better to this than than we can. Really, we're, we're uh, the fund sponsor, so our name is on it, but he's actually the index provider uh, that we're partnering with him on. But really, the thought there is, um, you know, it's, it's a pretty fundamental screen trying to identify undervalued companies, um, you know, factor-based systematic value investing hasn't worked for call it, I don't know, five, 10 years. Yeah. Um, eventually it, it will, I don't know what the catalyst will be. Um, but it's, it's, it's basic. And we're actually undergoing a pretty interesting shift in that strategy. Now, I don't even know if I can, well, we're going to shift things up and smooth, move to kind of small, even smaller cap than what the fund does now. Cool. Um, that's where he sees the opportunity. And so he, Tobias sort of picks who ends up in that index and the ETF is just based off that, right? And is that basically acquires multiple stuff that he's been doing for years and years? You got it. That's exactly okay. right. Cool. Okay. And then there's uh Oh, yeah. yeah. There's one more question. Uh, you've been talking about this on Twitter. It's the Stonks app. I don't know if this is a social thing. It hasn't launched yet. <laughs> do, you have any, uh, do you have any news about that or anything? <laughs> so we haven't launched yet. Hopefully we'll have it in the app store for kind of a closed beta uh, by the end of this month. But really what we noticed when, in, in the sense that our, our model is really going after the end client of ETFs, right? Whether people have advisors going to the end investor or whether even institution like trying to connect with people, uh, we didn't really have a way to kind of interact with who the end investors were or even to really know who they are. Um, so we're working on Stonks app, which is kind of, and the name, we think the name's great, but we'll yeah. see what the response is there. Right, um, right. The whole thought is kind of playing off of this concept of creating a place. I think a lot of it takes place on Twitter now. A lot of it takes place on Reddit, but kind of creating this third place for people who are passionate about investing to talk about and, 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 and to create a community around what people actually own um, and almost act as kind of a third party verification. So I'll give you a little bit in the way that it works, but it connects via plaid into people's actual existing brokerage accounts. Um, and then we're doing things around what do people actually hold? Where did they, where did they place trades? Um, and building a community around real portfolios, uh, as opposed to what I think has been tried before, which is fantasy investing, which yeah. everyone ends up with the three X levered Nat gas ETF. And it's like, mm -hmm. would you have done that if you were playing with your real money? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's an interesting idea. Um, so, I'm so excited to see like, what it's like. Yeah. It's Go ahead, like huh? adding a social media aspect to your brokerage or 
almost like spinning off into it on its own, but you're actually verifying it. That's kind of the idea. And I think you're starting to see this concept of social brokerage pop up, right? I don't know if you guys have ever come across public or eToro. We don't want to compete with the brokers because that's too hard of a game, the customer acquisition. Like that's not where we want to play, but to kind of have this third party that sits on top, whether you're, you know, if one of us is on Robinhood, the other guy's on TD Ameritrade, have a community to talk about real positions and holdings and trades. That's kind of the, the high level concept. And it seems that since stock twits kind of has, I don't know, I don't like going on there. It's just a bunch of, um, it's not fun to be on there at all. It seems like there's an opening um, that they kind of left, op- you know, there, there's something there. Yeah. All right. Well, we think we'll, so. Yeah. Well, we'll get into uh, the specific stuff you guys go over. Esports is the first one, I guess, gaming in general. Just before we get into the everything, like, what is esports and how does it differ from gaming? Because I don't think a lot of people know. Uh, yeah. And I think if you ask industry people, depending on what angle they're coming at it from, you might get a few different answers. But if you're a purist, esports is kind of regulated professional gaming um, that takes place in organized leagues and tournaments, very similar to what we think of when we think of traditional sports. Um, and that's a really exciting opportunity. You've got hundreds of millions of viewers worldwide, many of which are in China, Korea, uh, EU. The US is just starting to kind of take hold. We saw a bit of that during, during COVID. Um, but for us, we kind of take a, a slightly different approach because we think that's a little bit too narrow. And when we're talking about esports as it relates to our index and our fund, really we're looking at the broader concept of game streaming and really this, this second derivative of, of watching other people play that's starting to take hold, whether it's on Twitch or YouTube. Um, and some of that isn't high level professional play per se, but also just kind of watching content creators. Um, and for us, it's really kind of trying to capture this trend of games that's, that's been taking place for a while, but games being you know, social and games being competitive and, and, and capturing that trend. And that's where, really where we see kind of the the excitement and future of gaming yeah i I was one of those kids watching gamers and some of the best ones weren't even that good at the actual game they were just funny to watch and so they're kind of like i don't know the typical more popular youtube channels and that stuff um but i want to get into the actual esports teams how does that like how does the business model work for that how does the esports team generate revenue and then how do the games or the game publishers benefit from it? Sure. Um, and I think uh, I would just, I actually should point out if anyone's interested, I'm sure everyone's an investor that's listening in. If you can invest foreign, there's actually a couple pure play esports teams that are actually oh. publicly listed right now. So really? if you're interested to dig down in the financials, see what it looks like. Astralis, which is one of the best Counter-Strike teams in the world is listed in Norway. Um, and Enthusiast Gaming in Canada is the parent of, of Luminosity and a couple of the Overwatch and Call of Duty teams. So you can actually dig in and look at the financials yourself. But um, I kind of see there being, and this comes back to exactly what you were just mentioning, Ryan, which is there's kind of two different models that are taking place with esports teams. You have the kind of content creation model, um, which is what, if you've ever heard of FaZe Clan or 100 Thieves does, which is really... Um, kind of shorter term, more PL focused, but but kind of taking this approach that gaming is actually different than traditional sports. And let's let's maybe not try and necessarily in every game be the be the best professional team, but instead, to your point, get the most exciting content creators that draw the biggest crowds every time they go on Twitch or YouTube or Facebook. 
um, and monetize them via merch drops, via ads. Uh, so that's one model. The other model that I think kind of is more traditionally what you think of as esports is what Cloud9 or G2 Esports does, which is try and build the best, you know, the New York Yankees of League of Legends or of Counter-Strike. And they're two very different models. Um, for the latter, actually, you're actually seeing franchise slots that are being purchased in these different leagues. Oh. So the same way that when there's an expansion and the New York Tech and, and the Houston Texans join the NFL, you know, Activision Blizzard was selling franchise slots, like to have a seat at, to even be in the league, they were selling them for 25 million uh, a pop. Um, league of Legends, depending on what region you're in, uh, was going upwards of 10 million too. In terms of how they monetize, uh, it's kind of it's very similar to traditional sports on the east on the on the pro esports side. The second group I'm talking about, it's sponsorships. It's and and a lot of them are endemic, right? It's guys who make mice or keyboards or Monster Energy. Um, right. It's it's advertisements uh, to, in, in a normalized environment. You've got tick you know ticket sales and merchandise sales. And then for me, the most interesting component um, is media rights. So what you're seeing now is Coming back to the first grouping, individual content creators, all of the biggest streamers in the world, whether you're in Asia or in the US now, are under multi-year contracts with different platforms. So you might have an exclusive deal with, with Twitch if you're if you're Ninja. Uh, you might have an exclusive deal with Huya if you're a pop popular Chinese streamer. Um, and the media rights are not only growing for those individual creators, but they're also growing for the proper esports leagues as well. So last year, Activision, or yeah, I think it was earlier this year, Activision signed a pretty big deal, um, over hundred million for a, a few years with YouTube to be the exclusive, to YouTube to get the exclusive rights for the Call of Duty League, Overwatch League and Hearthstone. Um, and the teams then, same way we have in traditional sports are kind of gonna do a revenue share model. Um, and, and that's typically how the, the pro esports teams um, will kind of make money. And when I look at, I think your last question was, how do game, how do like the game publishers, game developers benefit themselves from esports? I think the the biggest kind of higher level concept here is esports and like the you know kind of the glam the, the glamorous events that are put on um, on a world stage are some of the best marketing you can possibly do to bring people into your game. And more importantly, from a business standpoint, um, I look at a game like. Counter-Strike or League of Legends, these games have been around for more than 10 years. Um, and why are they continued to be played and iterated on? Part of it is new content is now delivered digitally, but it's also, you know, esports, I think, and watching the highest level of competitive play increases the longevity of how long these games are popular. And that, I mean, that's the holy grail in terms of what the business model can be. Okay. So I'm trying to, I'm thinking about it like typical sports. So uh, like a call of duty or something is sort of your NFL and then teams, esports teams can sign up for spots in that game publishers league. Am I getting that right? Or that games yeah. league specifically? Yeah. I think it's the, the nuance there is it's on, it's on a game level. Um, and mm -hmm. I think what you're kind of alluding to is the difference here is there's an Activision blizzard that literally owns the intellectual property owns the game. And no one's, um, yeah, no one owns football. Sorry, sorry. No one owns the sport of football, right? Like we could, we could get a few buddies and start a pickup football league. Um, we can't do that and start a pickup Overwatch league unless we get sign off from the publisher. 
Um, so the game publishers, the game developers are in a unique position to accrue, you know, to accrue and, and kind of get the most amount of value of everything that comes with esports. And it's kind of this push pull of how do they do that in a way that they're allowing the other stakeholders to kind of grow as it grows. Okay. Um, now I want to talk about, uh, I want to get into games as a service and then the gaming engines as well. I believe Tim Sweeney was asked at one point, is Fortnite a game or a platform? So I'm going to ask you that question. Do you think Fortnite is a game or a platform? And then how do you see them sort of, we've seen incidents where uh, there was concerts or movie previews or the, the anti-Apple message. How do you see them continuing to leverage that? Um, is there any other areas they can uh, expand to? Well, I'm assuming you guys know that was me that asked him that question, right? Was that Oh, you? really? Yeah, that was me. No way, no way. Wow, no, that, we did not know that. We just- Okay, yeah, that was me. Um, so as you can imagine, I have some thoughts. Um, yeah. I should also mention, the private investment we made is in Epic Games. So okay. I should just mention that. Um, but is it a game or, I mean, I'm, you better believe my plan is to ask, re-ask Tim, because he asked me to ask him again in 12 months. So I've, right. I've got it on my calendar to tweet back at him to get his thoughts. But I think, I think it's becoming abundantly clear that Fortnite is not just a game. I think you could say the same for Minecraft. You could say the same for Roblox. You could say the same for Grand Theft Auto. Um, and it's really becoming number one. Fortnite is kind of, I don't know how old you guys are, but for me, I grew up messaging my friends after school on AOL Instant Messenger. Now, kids will get on with their friends and communicate with their headsets on via right. Fortnite. Right. Um, and I think in that sense, it's taking over social, but in terms of this concept of it being a platform, which it definitely is, I mean, you, you talked about some of this, but they're now doing a concert series within the game. So to attend the concert, you actually have to log in as your avatar um, and attend a certain part of the map to watch a, a concert. We saw this with Travis Scott. We saw it with Marshmallow. Um, and are those, and, are, are, those sorry, concerts, are those concerts free or do you have to have the battle pass or whatever it is, the subscription? They're free. They're, they're fully free to go watch. Um, and it brings up this interesting question of, I actually pulled it up. If you look at the Google search trends for, I think both Fortnite and Travis Scott after that concert, they both peaked, like they both went up. So really? it didn't only bring Travis Scott fans that wanted to watch their favorite artists into the game of Fortnite. It also introduced Travis Scott to gamers that maybe weren't familiar with his music from all over the world. Right. Um, and I think in that sense, it becomes such a powerful platform um, and the lowest hanging fruit, at least right now, just given that they have it in place, is, is as a platform for musical for music artists. Um, we also saw with Star Wars last year, um, super cool integration where they, they previewed the video trailer for the movie inside of the game, once again. Um, and in that case, you know, you'd have to imagine, I don't know what Star Wars is paying Epic for that, but something. Uh, they, they took it a step further and actually introduce lightsabers for characters instead of that typical axes in Fortnite. And like what you can achieve there, especially with a younger demographic in terms of like the, you, you feel more of an emotional attachment to whatever the, the brand is or the activation that's being done in the game. If you get a, if you get a lightsaber or an item from it or a character skin, it's like, it's very difficult to try and quantify that, but it's just so powerful. And we're, we're truly seeing 
like this this world being built, this metaverse being built, where so much is going on outside of the physical world, but in the digital. It's like it's pretty amazing. Fred, you, oh, go ahead, Ryan. Do you think it's better that Fortnite continues to make that free for the users to see because it's basically marketing for the uh, artists or Star Wars? Or would it rather would it be better if they it was only people with the battle pass? Um, I guess you could see them start to monetize certain exclusive events via battle pass, but I think the the whole industry is shifting towards this concept of you alluded to it earlier games as a service um, and having most of the content within the game being free to access and free to play. And I think that's just a like there there's that's just like a numbers game where it's better to have more users than not. I mean, this is very similar to a model that we're seeing employed kind of throughout, right? The freemium model concept is not new to gaming per se. It's, you can get a certain amount of service by doing the free version and then they try and upsell you, whether it's, you know, we're on Zoom right now, I'm on the free version, right? Yeah. Similar high level concept. Okay, well, I guess the transition to this next question here, do you see this working at all in any other businesses or is this something that is unique to gaming in general? Yeah, I mean, I think I just highlighted there that it's not necessarily unique to gaming. Um, I mean, in terms of the world of entertainment, just think about going to a public event or a co public concert or a public fair where it's free to go, but you're right. gonna buy a beer and a hot dog and it's monetized that way. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit different conceptually to think about that the beer and the hot dog isn't physically in my hand. Instead, it's some digital cosmetic. Um, yeah. And that's kind of a thing that I think, you know, younger generations that grew up living on an iPad uh, can appreciate better than maybe we could. And certainly the generation above us ever could. Right. Um, but I think when you, when you, when you look at kind of free to play, you know, there are going to be different monetization tools that are unlocked on mobile. For example, if you guys ever download a free mobile game, um, by the way, the game I'm like obsessed with now is called Archero. I can't stop playing it. Um, they're going to serve you ads in between right. you know, gameplay. And that's like, that's just a low hanging fruit. And I think the next iteration there, we're starting to see this and it's been done, but is within these truly immersive worlds. So imagine a Grand Theft Auto, you're driving down the street and one of the billboards has a Sprite, you know, a Sprite advertisement on it or you know, you could just see where that goes. And as people spend more time within the game, the opportunity for that and to monetize it becomes better. Just you're, you're never going to get a more engaged eyeball than someone playing a game. It's just so much better than someone watching TV because they're actively involved in it. And that makes the advertising yeah. potential kind of crazy to think about. Do you think that at some point, like the whole industry will go the way of like free to play and then monetize in-game or will there still be a blend where you've got the EAs and the call of, I think call of duty you still have to pay for. Um, uh, there's two versions. There's Warzone, which I guess I would love to hear your thoughts about Warzone. I think it has a huge amount of downloads right now. Um, and it's like maybe one of the most popular games currently. I think I saw that stat, but yeah, there's also the play call of duty that they release yeah. every year. You have to pay for Do you think those publishers will go the way of free to play? Um, I think in those two that you mentioned, so like EA sports franchises and, and Call of Duty, I mean, I think they could. Um, I think where you'll continue to see like $60 box titles um, are kind of like single player 
immersive, long storyline games that aren't social. Um, and insofar as those stay, um, really there's maybe not as much room for in-game monetization. And there it's such a kind of, it's less of an iterative process where you're continuing to push content digitally as much as it is, here's a great story that feels like a movie that you can play out, whether it's God of War or Assassin's Creed or whatever it is. It's not really meant to be social, but like we spent a lot of money developing it. I think those can probably still stay where you pay something up front. Uh, CD Projekt is releasing Cyberpunk, which is like probably the most sought after game in, in years. And that's gonna be uh, pay to play. Um, but yeah, I mean, you could, you could easily see, I mean, just think about Madden and this is even a better business model. Think about Madden, instead of um, buying the game each year, you pay a, subs a subscription to EA to play all the sports games. Uh, you know, five or $10 a month and they just update the players. I mean, that's all you're buying when you buy a new Madden anyway. It's right. It's yeah. like you're buying the rookies. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. All right. Well, I guess that was enough on the game as a service. Uh, but another thing that's popular right now with Unity's IPO is the engines. So could you talk about the difference between Unity and Unreal's engine and whether there are any other entrants in the marketplace, just kind of the engine market in general? Um, sure. And let me caveat this with saying I'm not an expert when it comes to game development or game engines. Okay. Um, but my general understanding is that Unity is really um, going after a different market than Unreal is. I think if you look at like the top A, you know, the top AAA really immersive games, they're going to more likely run on Unreal. Um, whereas Unity is really going after the super casual games that are going on mobile. Um, and it's just going after like really different markets at, at the core. Um, I think that's probably the, the biggest difference. They really kind of just serve different purposes, but they, the two of them control the large majority of the market, right? At the, at the, the really big publishers, they'll have in, in-house engines as well. But in terms of engines that are kind of being utilized by third parties, it's, it's Unreal and Unity. And, and that's kind of how I would would classify it. Unity is is a Toyota and, and Unreal is a Ferrari. Are they trying that to analogy work? Yeah, that, that makes that makes perfect sense. Are they trying to overlap with each other or is like are they pushing into each other's market at all? Or is that are they have they been staying separate for the last, you know, at least a few years here? My understanding is that they're really kind of going after different segments of the market. Um but like I said, others who have covered, you know, covered Unity in, in depth probably be better than I to, to speak to that. But both can win. Let me tell you, like, I think right. mobile is the fastest growing and probably most exciting, generally speaking, part of the market. But it's just very different from building a beautifully looking game that needs to run at really high quality. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it'd be a zero sum space. Um, uh, okay, so next question. Uh, Unity and Unreal have both, and we have gotten this thesis because I was an EA shareholder for a while, and people were like, well, EA, uh, Unity and Unreal are going to lower the barriers to entry. It's going to be really easy for these smaller developers to develop good games, and that's going to steal market share from the bigger guys. Is, is that have merit to it, or do you see the incumbents still being able to kind of hold their own? It's a great question. And coming back to my last kind of response, I think you know, Unity is the one of the two that's more likely to have an impact here in terms of offering that kind of lower cost, um, you know, engine and, and operating model to, to clients. I think I can answer this kind of both ways, but I think 
you're definitely, there's no question that you're seeing indie developers that are coming out with more hits than ever before. I mean, look at, I don't know if you go on the, if you go on Twitch right now, if anyone that's listening goes to twitch.tv, I would guess Fall Guys is among the top 10 games being watched. Among Us is among the top 10 games being watched. And those are from developers that don't have the budgets anywhere near in EA um, or otherwise. So I think that the games industry, yeah, the, the short answer is yes. As the tools get more efficient and cheaper to use, it allows lower, lower barriers to entry. But I, I do think that that's expanding the market rather than kind of cannibalizing the existing players. Because when you look, let's just use a Grand Theft Auto as an example. That's hundreds of millions of dollars in R&D costs to get GTA 6 and years of development too, right? Like if you're an indie developer, you don't have a low enough cost of capital or a long enough runway to try and compete with that. But for these kind of less um, kind of like non-AAA games, it definitely, definitely makes, makes sense. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's, it's kind of fascinating to see um, all of these new entrants like come up with these really simple games. Like if you look at Among Us, if the graphics are like, go back 20 years, but it's just oh, like, really? it, it caught, it became viral. Okay. Um, and that opportunity is there. So it might be more one hit wonders, but it's not going to be, have the staying power of a GTA call of duty or FIFA or something like that. Yes. But I, but I will just add to this, that there's really smart venture capital firms that are focusing on indie developers because okay. I mean, look at Epic games before Fortnite. I mean, they, okay. They had unreal engine and they had gears of war, but like, that's one example. Look at CD Projekt before The Witcher. Um, and, you know, look, even a better example, Among Us, I, the company that developed Among Us, or excuse me, Fall Guys, had been around for, I think, 10 or 15 years, and then they finally got a hit. And they wow. hadn't had anything like this over that whole period. So, like, it's a very attractive investment space in indie developers um, for early stage. Right. All right. And then I guess we wanted to talk about a few more publishers. C Limited uh, is very popular right now, probably because of the stocks up like 800%. I know <laughs> this is only like a third of their business, but you know, why was Free Fire so successful for them? And is that success repeatable at all? Or is that maybe, uh, is there a potential that it could be like a one hit wonder? Uh, yeah. So I think I, I could narrow it down to a couple main reasons. Um, okay. I think what you saw with Free Fire was the game was designed. Uh, so it's a battle royale game, right? Similar to PUBG or, or Fortnite. There's many battle royales, Apex Legends. There's many battle royales out there. For them, they're focused on, it's only on mobile. Um, and they designed the game to run on lower end hardware. So in doing so, you know, I don't know, I forget the exact, you know, can you run it on iPhone 5? I forget, but you, you get the idea. In doing so, they developed a game that was able to target emerging markets. So the, the, the biggest markets for Free Fire are very different from what they are for Fortnite. It's Latin America and Brazil, it's Southeast Asia and Indonesia um, and Vietnam and Thailand, where smartphones penetration rates gone up a lot, but they don't have iPhone 11s. Um, and in that sense, going after that underserved market, I think totally was why Free Fire took off in the way that it did. Not because it's necessarily a better game than Fortnite. That's very um, smart. Very, very smart business move there. Yeah. Do you think? No, totally. It does. So you said it can run on sort of the older devices. Um, as those more emerging markets start to adopt better tech, does it stay with the technology as it gets better? Or do they have to revamp that game over and over? 
Um, I guess we'll kind of we'll kind of see. I, in Free Fire's case, they've released a, like a better version. I forget what they call it, if it's Pro or or something like that. But and then and PUBG's done this too, where they have PUBG Lite, and it's all about kind of building these for different markets where just different qualities of of uh, smartphones are. But for for C, I mean, they recently acquired another game publisher. Um, and I don't know whether they're trying to develop another Free Fire. If I was them, I wouldn't even try and worry about it. Continue to monetize that, grow right. the user base more than they have in kind of these different markets that people aren't paying attention to. Um, to me, the, the big question for them within this gaming vertical, and you guys mentioned it, but the, the, the story of the stock is no longer fully gaming, um, right. is can they increase revenue per user? Because they have tons and tons of users, but if your users are in India or Brazil, they monetize at a lower rate than the US. Right. That makes sense. Now you did, if I'm not mistaken, you left Nintendo out of the nerd index. Why is that? It's a good question. Um, so even though it's an index based product, really what we're trying to target, as I mentioned earlier, is kind of this concept of social gaming um, and esports. And when you look at Nintendo, they're probably as anti social gaming and esports as any major publisher comes. Um, in fact, I think a few years ago, they actually for a brief period, and then they realized this was really dumb, uh, banned streaming on Twitch of all their games. And it's like, it's probably the best marketing you could ask for, but they kind of didn't see it that way. So for them, if they ever kind of take a stance where they're pro esports and, and leaning into it, I mean, they do have Super Smash Brothers that has a pretty big uh, community uh, of professional play, they, they would have a chance to get in. I will say that Maybe a lot of people don't appreciate this, but Nintendo is a hardware business right. currently, yeah. right? It's not, it's not a software play. It's their business right now is selling Nintendo switches. Yeah. yeah that, I mean, there are the game downloads for the switch, but the thesis is definitely still switch centric for any Nintendo shareholders. But. I would think that's the case for the next couple of years. And, and for just to further this, Nintendo is still doing that old model to a large degree, the $60 or whatever the cost is out of the box game, right. uh, rather than taking advantage of kind of digital distribution. Right. All right. And I guess on the other end of the spectrum is a startup called Roblox. It was actually, we just got some news that they're planning to go public in the first quarter of 2021. Um, there's some one that everyone plays as I think if the stat is under 13 uh, spends more time on there than YouTube. But can you explain what they do and why people, I guess kids especially, are spending so much time on Roblox? Yeah. So Roblox fits into the same category I'd put in Minecraft or uh, Grand Theft Auto and going after very different age demographics, right? Grand Theft Auto is mature. Minecraft is maybe in the, the teen area. And Roblox is really going after younger kids. Um, if you open up Ro Roblox, like the graphics are, are nothing to write home about. It's really just built this kind of amazing community of user-generated content. And that's how it's all built. So I haven't spent much time in there speaking frankly, but it's all about games inside of the platform or inside of the game that users themselves have built. Um, and they might be very different from one another, right? One might be a shooter, another might be an adventure game, all built within the Roblox ecosystem. And I think why it's been able to grow so well is it's kind of playing off of this concept of the creator economy that we're, you know, that's part of the reason why social media has expanded in the way that it has. Right. And it provides a platform form, excuse me, for its users to monetize um, themselves. And, and yeah, when you look at, 
if you ask anyone that you speak to that comes on the podcast that's in their 40s or 50s that has kids, they'll know Roblox because really? every kid is playing it. I mean, the hours spent on there are absurd. And it's weird because no one in the investing community, maybe it's because they're not public, um, has really heard about it. And they're almost bigger than YouTube for a lot of demographics. So does this make it into the uh, index as soon as it goes public? Well, I can't comment on that, right, uh, right, right. but it certainly checks the box as being a social gaming platform. Let's put it right. that way. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to move away from gaming and more into the gambling slash sports betting. Um, and there's obviously a lot of hype surrounding sports betting right now. It feels like one of the most, I don't yeah. want to say hypey markets, but it's definitely People are talking about it a lot on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Pornoy and Penn National throwing, they're basically throwing <laughs> gasoline on the fire, right? So, so why, why did you guys start the ETF? Why, what do you guys like about the sports betting market? Yeah, so we, um, we started working on this fund uh, late last year, early this year. Um, we didn't actually launch until, um, until June. So we've only been out there for about four months. Um, and it's funny, I'll just share an anecdote with you guys. So whenever we have a new ETF idea, we have to present it to the board that oversees the ETFs. And I think we presented it when like there was literally zero sports on and they were like, are you sure you want to go forward with this? Um, we said, yes, it's, it's a long-term opportunity. It's not about this quarter or next. Um, for us, I think, you know, in 2018, basically you had a PASPA overturned and that made sports betting legal on the federal level. Last year, New Jersey kind of paved the way and showed what you could do in terms of tax revenues. Um, and for us, you know, we made the decision early this year that you know this looks like an industry that kind of checks all the boxes um, that we saw in esports. And not only is it a long-term secular growth story in the U.S., um, but it also has catalysts that we expect in the term of kind of various. It's everything's done on a state-by-state -state level. Um, so you're going to have catalysts as states kind of regulate and, and legalize their betting markets. Um, and for us, you know, the, the other reason we thought bets was kind of really compelling was uh, a lot of the names in our portfolio aren't U.S. Uh, in fact, I think U.S. is somewhere around 30 or 40 percent. It varies day by day based on price performance. But a lot of the interesting companies are listed in Sweden or listed in Australia or the U.K., and for us, that's going to be part of the math too, is can we offer a compelling product that actually adds value to our investors? Um, this checked the box there. And then we saw, um, you know, the SPAC uh, acquired DraftKings and it, and it just kind of all came together in terms of, right. of timing. But we think it's a really interesting long-term story. Yeah, I was going to say that. I guess you'd know better than me, but I feel like that ended up being pretty good timing on the launch. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we, we could have done better if we did it on March 12th or whatever the low in the market right, was, right, right. but, uh, no, it's performed very well, uh, very well versus the, the, the various benchmarks. And it's, it's like, to your guys point, it's like almost every day that something related to one of the portfolio companies is in the news. Okay. So just broadly, I want to know what you think of Penn's acquisition of Barstool. Cause a lot of people have obviously talked about that one. And then how else do you see some of the uh, other sports betting companies getting that social aspect that Barstool sort of cultivated through their brand? Yeah, so I actually wrote a whole blog piece on their acquisition. So it's on our website if anyone wants, wants to go in and read it. But I think that, the, I think it was a great deal. Um, and I think 
in we'll, we won't really fully be able to appreciate how good of an acquisition it was for for a few years but i don't think i can ever recall an acquisition where the parent company bought a basically a bolt-on deal right they you know this was um this was 150 million ish uh invest you know cash investment they do have the opportunity to go above 50 percent, but for 36 percent of barstool and you know, Penn is a well-established company. They operate tons of casinos throughout the entire U.S. Um, you know, the, I forget what the enterprise value was. I write it in the blog there, but it was, this was like a, a tiny acquisition that changed the entire story of Penn um, kind of overnight. And if you look at the performance of, you know, the DraftKings and PointsBets um, and GANs of the world versus the legacy brick and mortar guys like Boyd or MGM or, or, or Wynn, you know, Penn is now trading like it's a completely digital company. Now, obviously it's right. not, yeah. but they did one small acquisition and it completely changed. Um, and I think for them, um, it's really interesting what they're doing because effectively when they bought Barstool, obviously they launched the Barstool app last month and it completely crushed it in terms of expectations for the first couple of weeks. Um, they're taking an approach that Barstool is now their customer acquisition tool. Barstool is now their top of funnel. Um, and very different from FanDuel and DraftKings, who spend hundreds of millions of dollars per year to get those same customers. Um, and, and, and just to come back to your earlier question, uh, what they're doing with making it social is they're having bets that are actually based off of the various influencers, right? So Big, big Cat will sponsor a certain bet, uh, and so will Dave, and so will PFT. Uh, and the ability to kind of create these narratives around individuals is like very unique to them, but other sports betting companies are doing similar things. They're, you're just not hearing about them because no one's as loud as Dave, right? Um, right? Like FanDuel has something with uh, Pat McAfee. Um, uh, Jamie Foxx just did something with BetMGM. Others are trying to do stuff. They're, kind of they're similar partnering things. with uh, someone's partnering with the ringer. I can't even remember what, but yeah, huh. something like that. Too. No, there's so, there's so much. And then the other partnerships that's taking place are with legacy sports media companies. So NBC has a deal with PointsBet, Fox has a deal with um, Flutter, uh, William Hill and CBS. They all, every sports media brand that we think of now, DraftKings with ESPN, um, you're just gonna see sports bets and, lie, and lines and, and odds like baked into every, everything that you can think of in terms of television broadcasts, streaming, whatever. Yeah, I mean, and then there's been a lot of hype about this for sure. I mean, there's been a lot of acquisitions, all these deals, and that has brought on the skeptics. Um, I think I saw Chanos, uh, Jim Chanos on Twitter being publicly skeptical about it. There's been a few others about how big the sports betting market will actually be. What are the strategies of these companies, you know, Penn National, all the other ones you listed, and what has been working and what hasn't? Yeah, so I think when we look at the opportunity set for U.S. sports betting. Um, and the, the broader opportunity here is a shift from in-person, physical, brick-and-mortar gambling, whether that's casino or, or sports betting, um, to, to digital and to mobile and to online. And it's, a, it's a, obviously a higher margin business than running an in-person um, casino. It, it really becomes you know, a question of, of software. Um, and just to give you one more point here, gambling is the largest form of entertainment globally. Gaming is really big, you know, video games are really big too, 150 right. billion growing 10% a year. Gambling's 500 billion globally in gross gaming revenues, the biggest by far. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of what the, the strategy is, 
for the U, we're talking about the U.S. I think is what what Chanos was referring to as well. It's very difficult to peg a total addressable market here because it's all black market. It's all unregulated. Um, I think you're seeing varying estimates from the sell side. Uh, I think the general consensus is it's measured in the tens of billions. Um, but right now where we are is it's completely a land grab. Um, and that consists of two things. One, trying to get into new states as they allow for it as soon as possible. And companies like Penn are really well positioned because they have physical presences in these states already and have relationships with the regulators. And then the second is um, once you're in these new states, grabbing market share and spending tons of advertising dollars on it. Um, when we get to kind of maturity, uh, you know, these can be very profitable business models for sports betting. I think Morgan Stanley says 25% EBITDA margins, but the long-term play here, I don't think is sports betting. Um, the, just the, in the, in the exact same way, the daily fantasy for FanDuel and DraftKings wasn't the long-term play. That was the customer acquisition. I think sports betting, uh, leads into iGaming, which is online casino, whether it's online slots or online poker, or online blackjack. Because that is the tr kind of the really holy grail, great business model, predictable margins, recurring revenues here. Um, and I think that's where we'll eventually, I mean, we're already seeing it, right? DraftKings has DraftKings Casino in the few states. The, the thing with online, with iGaming is it's going to take, it's going to run on a different schedule from a regulatory perspective because regulators view in-person betting and online betting and online casino as, as different things. Um, but that's one is really the long-term play here is iGaming. And for me, when I look at sports betting, um, I could actually even see sports betting get to a, a business model where you're talking about zero VIG. So if, you're, if you guys have ever placed a bet, you usually bet 110 to win 100. Mm -hmm. I could see it move toward, and that's you know how the, the books get their hold. Yeah. Um, I could see that move towards zero VIG bet 100 to win 100, um, where instead of being monetized based on, you know, generic bets, users are monetized based off of kind of parlays and futures bets and, and, and their data, uh, very similar to what we've seen in online brokerage in the US where Robinhood makes money, not off of you trading because it's free, but on trading options and selling your order flow. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing, I know I'm going way too long on this probably. No worries, no worries. Great. The last thing that I'm like really excited by is live betting. Um, and I just tweeted about this today, but I think that if if and when, you know, we will perfect live betting. Uh, and it's really important that you have like no lag when you're watching a sporting event and streaming yeah. is, is typically runs on a little bit of lag. But like if, you're, if you can bet on whether the next pitch is a fastball or whether the next play is a play action, um, and have that integrated into the viewing relationship in a very involved way. Now you're talking about like a totally different mindset for how people consume sports and having it really being gamified for the individual user, which I think comes back to the broader thesis of why we like esports and gaming. Um, now you're talking, and don't get me wrong, very heavy legwork from a data perspective to properly price that right. and make sure you don't lose money. But that's like the holy grail. And think about it now beyond sports. Let's say watching the debate, we could bet when the fly is going to come. You know, it's just like, that's like, we can't even contemplate, Tam. Okay. No, that makes sense. And if, if it got legalized in Washington, so right now we're kind of restricted. If you want to do it, you have to use, you know, black market sources, but, or pretend that you live somewhere else. 
Uh, <laughs> but in Washington, if they had it legalized and there was zero VIG, there's I would definitely go to the one that had zero VIG. So it, I, I think it makes sense that I might go there eventually just because the competition pressure bringing everything down. Who do you think would be the the uh, sort of leader in the in-game sports betting? Is, is that still the bar stools of the world? Um, so it's interesting. So like Barstool and Penn rely on a Swedish company, which is publicly listed actually called Cambi for their backend, for their data and for their interface. Um, so it's not always, it's not always the front end provider. In fact, a lot of times they're just putting on a different logo and different look and feel to the same kind of data sources. You know, in terms of live, I, I don't know well enough who's leading that charge. It's not a new concept, but it's really getting that concept ported to mobile and taken to the next level, right? It's, it's one thing to be able to bet on the updated spread at halftime or during a timeout. It's a totally yeah. another thing to take it to like literally what type of play are they going to run next? Um, and that's where I see the opportunity. I don't have an answer in terms of who's, who's going to win that one. Yeah. It seems like it's, it's a difficult problem to solve, but when it gets solved, there's going to be a lot of market opportunity there. All right. Um, you may have answered a little bit of this, but last question, are there any, or at least on uh, the gaming industry, are there any of these traditional ones, you know, MGMs? Um, I think there's some in Macau in China that are very traditional. Uh, there's Wynn Resorts. Do they have any advantages over these digital first companies or are these digital ones, do you think, going to just continually grow market share over them? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, there's something to be said. It's hard to talk about this during COVID, right? Because it's right. like no one's in the, I mean, there are people in the casinos, but it's not like what it normally is. Um, I think there's something nominal to be said for having the relationship to kind of cross sell people between getting them to go to your casino and having them in your app. But to me, the bigger thing relates to this concept of regulation and, and, and skins um, and having kind of early access to different markets. Uh, and I think when you look at the different players, actually, believe it or not, Penn is in a ton of states versus some of the other larger players you mentioned that are really focused on the Vegas Strip. Um, so I think Penn is pretty well positioned there, but I think, you know, the digital, the digital guys have an advantage in the sense that their cost of capital is so low right now, right? Like right. I, I tweeted this today, DraftKings raised one and a half billion dollars, um, and you know, barely diluted shareholders. Like how can you compete with that? Um, I guess Penn did an offering too, but yeah, I mean, I think it was smart. I mean. I haven't looked at Penn's balance sheet that much, but I did see they had a lot of debt. So having this inflated share price and the other companies having inflated share prices, um, it might be smart to do these share offerings um, just to get some more capital in. All right. I agree. Uh, last two wrap-up questions. And we asked this to all our interviewees. I'll go first. What is one financial saying that you disagree with? Uh, yeah. And this one uh, hits close to home because I, at one point was was trading MLPs, Master Limited Partnerships, which people bought for their yield, is the, the saying, I'm getting paid to wait because you're getting paid to wait, 6% yield, awesome, but the stock just dropped 7% yesterday. So who's getting paid what? <laughs> right, right. No, that's good, that's good. Yeah, All right. <laughs> Yep. Yep. Yeah. I don't think anyone's had that before. So we're always <laughs> glad when someone comes in with a unique answer. Um, all right. Last, last question. What's one piece of advice you have for someone starting out in the investing world? So not just investing, but like a career in investing. I hope that doesn't. Oh, happen. a career in yeah. investing or just any, or if, if, or yeah, you could, no, I, if you want. I can do both. I mean, I think a career in investing, um, probably the most important thing is just, you know, 
to really have a passion for whatever part of the market you're in, whether it's operations or trading or research. Because um, I think a lot of people come into this industry just because the allure of potentially making a lot of money and what they see on TV and in the movies. Um, I think at the end of the day, it's still it's still a job and you got to try and find your niche that you really love. Uh, and that, that would kind of be it. Uh, yeah, that sounds good. All right. Thank you for joining us, Will. Had a, had a good conversation. Yeah, great time. Loved it. Thanks for having me. Welcome back in. Thanks again to Will Hershey for joining us. Had a blast, mm -hmm. but time for hot water. I have three. So do I. Who's, I always forget whose turn it is to go first, but... How about uh, we can uh, alternate on this one? Yeah, but I, we say it every... Oh, okay, okay. All right. The physical world is in hot water. All right. I don't think you have this one. Because now <laughs> Probably not. even dentist appointments are being done virtually. Um, oh. So patients are attaching a special scope to their smartphone camera, opening an app, and sending videos of their mouth to their dentist or orthodontist. Is that too far, or is that more validation of like the Teladoc <laughs> type business model? I don't know if it's about. I mean, Teladoc I think can succeed without this. I but saw. Okay, it's, it seems strange. I'm I saw not the article it. headline, and I was like, hmm, all right, orthodontist dentist appointments. Uh, Nah. virtually that's a little weird and then there was a video with it of someone's mouth uh, and it ruined it for me yeah i don't want to see anyone's mouth i don't <laughs> want to see the inside of anyone's mouth all right um you're you got a first one here? yeah first one fedex and ups um amazon logistics is actually going to deliver as many packages in the u.s this year as ups and 50 percent more than fedex what do you think about that mm. fedex value play no way dude they're gonna you remember that dude. day there i think it was fedex maybe it was ups one of them got their stock literally cut in half overnight uh when amazon like said they were going the only reason they're staying in business is because amazon is wants to invest in this slower than people think if amazon wanted to invest and destroy the entire industry they would invest like 10 times as much as they can because they have that capital and they have the ability to they could raise money Okay, think about them raising equity. They, could, they what are they worth? Almost like one point five trillion right now. They can raise at a little bit of a discount to their uh, stock price and raise fifty billion dollars, or not fifty, okay, twenty five billion dollars in equity and build out the entire. They can UPS raise a FedEx. FedEx. They can raise a FedEx and a UPS overnight and take them, and basically take them out. I mean, yeah. they're walking. They're dead. UPS and FedEx are dead unless I mean government can step in, but. Catholicism is in hot water for me. I don't know if you heard about this because uh, they're 
They're a bit under duress right now. This week it came out through yeah. financial documents that the Vatican used charity funds to buy risky credit derivatives on Hertz, the car rental company. Um, <laughs> Yellow trade calls on Wall Street bets. They bought default swaps, basically betting that Hertz wanted to fall on their debt by April 2020. They declared bankruptcy a month after. And they bought these, I'm pretty sure, in like 2015. Oh, my God. They escaped by a month. Yeah, I mean, it's in God's hands. First of all, first of all, did you even know the Vatican is running an investment fund? Yeah, I know. We need to get on that. They have an endowment or something? Yeah. Man. That's how a, the hedge I mean, funds aren't chasing these guys. Yeah, that's a long-term... Um, I don't even know. There's so many dumb jokes you can make about that, but... The Pope... I guess, okay, I guess this was under the old pope, but the new pope, am I getting that right? Yeah, um, in 2018 stated, like, basically these things are a ticking time bomb. Like, default really? swaps are a ticking time bomb when they had them on their books. So he must have not even known. He's like the president of Lehman Brothers. <laughs> yeah, I want to go that far, but yeah. You know what I mean? When he was like, we're clean, we're good, you know, and then I mean, it, later, it wasn't him that put them on the books. I'm sure someone runs the fund, but yeah. I guess neither was the president of the Brothers. But. Either way, bad luck. Um, if you're going to do – I mean, you're it doing the, the same – the though. same – yeah, great headline. Same trades. You, you're doing the same trades as Robin Hood traders, YOLO traders, YOLO traders as they call them. Um, that usually doesn't end well, especially with a big institution. Yeah. All right. What's your second one? Okay. Uh, Will Mead, um, who I'm using his real name because he has like 100,000 followers and apparently a ton of AUM. He is the only guy in competition that's worse than Ross Gerber for not having money. No, I'm going to read this tweet for you. I, this no. guy, okay. It's Ross. No, nah, watch. Let me read this tweet. 1,300 likes. Uh, the 13-13-13 rule is the secret of investing. Whether your age is 17, 27, 37, 47, 57, or 67, $13,000 invested at a 13% return a quarter or 1% a week for 13 years, turns to $7.2 million. Financial advisors, hedge funds, and I, and international bank, or sorry, and investment banks know this retail. He's not even, this is an incoherent sentence. He said, <laughs> financial advisors, hedge funds, and investment banks know this, and retail doesn't. How? Long stock ETFs and puts as a hedge. That, I think he's up there. That's bad, right? Yeah. If he gets on FinTalk, it's over. Dude, he had. He first also off, he has a hundred thousand followers. So people, a hundred thousand people, well, ten thousand people, ninety thousand bots, are seeing this bullshit. Dude, long stocks and puts as a hedge. What is that? That's a two-step strategy. <laughs> he also had that long ass take of like, oh. uh, I'm going all cash. If In I March. were you, I would take liquidate all your belongings and like uh, go cash yeah at the low at the low yeah like i mean the take was eh, but it was completely wrong and that's why you don't do that dude uh, it's all just right. how are people giving i mean i hate to bash but this is it's like fiduciary responsibility it's a fake account it's ross gerber's burner uh, dude this better be a fake account um okay uh robin hood is in hot water because they yeah. always are we got recommended this one right yeah, article came out this week citing that multiple Robinhood accounts were hacked and looted. The article starts like this. It took Soraya Bagheri, I might be getting that wrong, a day to learn that 450 shares of Moderna, that's not her, she shouldn't, whatever, 
um, <laughs> had been liquidated in her Robin Hood account and that $10,000 in withdrawals were pending. But after alerting the online brokerage to what she believed was a theft in progress, she received a frustrating email. The firm wrote it would investigate and respond within a few weeks. Now her money is gone. This happened, I believe, to five others um, that cited the same complaints saying that they saw the funds being withdrawn but couldn't do anything about it since Robinhood doesn't have an emergency phone number. Yeah. Yeah. Who even, like, get off Robinhood. Yeah, please get off. If you're listening to this and you use Robinhood for anything outside of your betting account on options, um, which you should be using with not any sort of percentage of your actual net worth, get off and start using Schwab or TD or anything else. Please. Yeah. Uh, sometimes though it's awful so apparently this wasn't a hack through Robinhood it was like got they got through the email used for the Robinhood account and yeah I think Robinhood's at fault but sometimes I think the users are at fault like you should know yeah. to be off by now yeah. like they get slack like Robinhood ends up having to take the blame for some really stupid users sometimes. true true but you shouldn't be using Robinhood in the first place if you're using Robinhood and by the way they just got an 11.2 billion dollar Right. Yeah, I think that's the because they're they're basing not to go on a whole nother topic, but they base that valuation off of users, and we're technically both users plus Brady. Brady, you're technically a user. You're not correct. Nice, Brady's not yeah. in his head. Three users on there, right? That they're probably discounting at what like worth to be like five thousand dollars per user. We have no worth. We're we have I literally zero have no money on there. Yeah, I have no money on it either. I have like four bucks maybe. Or no, I, I have none. I have no. I have any none. Money on there. Yeah, I have none. I use it like to look up stocks because i like the user interface yeah okay did you have any others yeah this one actually just came out today uh this is from zero hedge newswire softbank says vision fund planning spac in two weeks that's that's just an orgasm of a sentence right there for financial twitter you know what i'm i am looking through the rest of my notes and i forgot to do a fuck Mary kill so i'm thinking of it right now i'm gonna use the spacs okay okay uh open door the new SoftBank one and playboy oh killing SoftBank because they're like <laughs> i i mean there's no evidence but we've said it before it feels bad no one that isn't desperate is buying out of the money options weekly options with that much money i've got to take the adam newman the adam newman story isn't over I hope not. I think fun. he might invent a new company that does really well. <laughs> him, and Billy, he's just misunderstood. Him, Billy McFarland, McFarland Martin Shkreli, Elizabeth Kalanick, Holmes, Elizabeth Holmes, Travis Kalanick, and then the chairman of the board can be Masayoshi son. Elon Musk. Uh, okay, those ones. I'll admit, Open Door seems okay. Uh, yeah. I was looking at their gross margins. They're bad, but they're they'll be able to scale a lot of revenue. I'll marry them just because it seems good. And you'll bang. Chamath, Chamath has um he's repute you know. He has a good reputation. Um, yeah. And then, what's the you, other one? Playboy? You have to bang Playboy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what am I, what am I saying here? <laughs> it's written there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'd probably do all the same things. I mean, Chamath is a good investor. I think he overdoes it sometimes, but... He's a hype yeah. beast. It's okay. But he's, yeah, he's good at what he does. Um, okay, anecdotal evidence. I really only have one. So do I. Uh, I started watching Billions. Nice. It's so good. Yeah, you're trying to... You want to be Bobby so, Axelrod, right? It's so good. There, it is. I what mean, uh? Are you finished season one? Yeah, I'm getting into season two. I mean, um, end of season one when they they showdown the showdown when uh, Chuck and Axe are at yeah. the. That's it's intense. It's. I mean, 
Is there anything Andrew Ross Sorkin can't do? <laughs> that guy is so good. Yeah, he's a. Uh, I mean, he's probably on CNBC. He's, him and David Faber are the only guys. That... No, what's the girl? Oh, Becky Quick. Yeah, she's good. She's solid. Um. Anyway, that's mine. That's not even that's good. Nothing if you're to take an, away if, there except yeah. Andrew Ross Sorkin's <laughs> Yeah, and if you're an investor or even like a lawyer, that show's a must watch. Yeah, definitely. Okay. What did you have? Yeah, I'll wrap things up. Uh, got my stitch fix and liked Ooh, it a lot. The anecdotal evidence. This is real, real. anecdotal yes. evidence. So worked well. Um, I liked what they had. I put some wrong sizes in, which is my fault. So I had to exchange some things, but it's coming back right away. Um, I mean, I can see where they have a lot of upfront costs because you have to send things twice sometimes. So a lot of shipping costs. Mm. But I honestly loved all the clothes I got. This thing I'm is wearing that- right now. Oh, it's nice. Go to the YouTube. Check it out. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to see some anecdotal evidence, I'm uh, right here. But if you're I, long stitch fix and not watching this on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. But I honestly, I liked it a lot. And I think, yeah, every, you know, a few months or maybe probably a little longer for my style. But how many things did you buy of the things you got? Well, I would have bought everything except for these shoes. They're a little too um, fancy for me. So I'm going to get some casual shoes. But the only reason I sent stuff back was because... It it was like a large, and I want I need a medium. Mm, so I liked good. everything else. Four out of the five things I liked. Wow. Yeah. Long stitch fix. Okay. Um, that's gonna do it. Thank you guys for listening. Follow or watch this on YouTube yep. if you're interested. Um, it's check out Will Hershey at Roundhill. Freddie's been getting on those thumbnails. We've been getting yeah. some hate comments. Yeah, um, I love the YouTube comments. Get in the trenches. It's battleground <laughs> out there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, thank you, Will Hershey, for coming on. Follow us on Twitter, or if you have a recommendation for a show or anything for us to talk about, just add us or email us, chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you guys for listening. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.